Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to listen to Jesus pray. And uh, there are so many wonderful things we can discover here. So we pray that you would give us your spirit this morning. Um, open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to behold wonderful things in your word. And uh, whether we're familiar with Christian things or still thinking about them, please show us what it means to follow Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, what, do, um, our priori- uh, what do our prayers reveal about our priorities, about the things that really matter to us? Uh, world leaders spent this week, I think they've got some more time out there in Egypt, talking a lot about the things that matter to them. Uh, Americans voted this week according to what was important to them in their midterm elections. But what about the priorities of our prayers? Uh, On our service sheet, you'll see on the back, there's some prayer points on there. How do we decide what to put on the prayer sheet? What do we decide to, how do we decide what to pray about in our monthly prayer meeting? What tends to be at the top of our own prayer lists? And not just the things that are going on in our lives or the things that are going on in the lives of our family or friends and, and not even the stuff we want to pray about in the world all around us. But what, is, what do we pray about for our church? What are our prayer priorities for this church that we're part of? For Commission, the network of churches that we're part of. For churches across the UK, for the Church of England, for... Uh, Those friends of ours from the United States who were with us last weekend, um, what might we pray for their churches? Now, we might think that that doesn't really matter. After all, Jesus says you can pray about anything. He gives us the Lord's Prayer as a model. And it is true that we can pray about anything and everything. But at the same time, it is really important that our priorities in prayer line up with God's priorities. Because if they don't, we're likely to go off track, not only in prayer, but practically too. We'll talk to God about things that are high up our list, but not that high up his list. And soon, practically speaking, we may well end up neglecting the things that really matter to him. We we might think about church based on um, our own ideas rather than God's ideas. And we may well miss out on the wonderful plans that God has for us as a church. Well, our our passage before us is the next part of the prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he died. We're we're working through it in three different sections. The first time, a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus, verses 1 to 5, pray that God would glorify him as he heads to the cross to give eternal life to his disciples, to everyone who trusts him. And now in this section, he moves his prayer away from himself towards those 11 men still in the room with him. Those men who've been following Jesus for the last three years, those 11 men who've been overhearing everything Jesus has been saying since he washed their feet back in chapter 13. And we might wonder, what can we learn from that, from that prayer for those 11? But Jesus' prayer for these, this unique prayer for these unique men does reveal a lot about the priorities we should be praying about too. Because these disciples, these apostles, they were the nucleus of the church. They were the seed of the church that we are part of today. What he prayed for them, I think confidently we can pray for ourselves. Some of us here this morning may pray regularly for the church, for the wider church as well. Others may not yet. 
But God encourages us to make Jesus' prayers our prayers. So as we listen this morning, it may be the case that we need to recalibrate the things we're praying for, for the church. It may be that this morning encourages you for the first time, perhaps, to start praying for your church. Or it may be for others that it's a reminder to get praying again. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet convinced about the Christian faith, please may I encourage you to feel no embarrassment just to listen in and to eavesdrop in on what Jesus prays about. Because the things he prays about are the things that matter to God. And you may be surprised by what you hear. There are two very simple things Jesus prays for. Uh, The first is this. Jesus prays for faithfulness. Jesus prays for faithfulness. Verses 6 to 12. Verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. So Jesus recaps what he has accomplished so far through his ministry. Uh, More literally, as you can see in the footnotes, he has revealed God's name to his disciples. In other words, he has shown them God's character, who God is, what God is like. As we read at the beginning of the gospel, chapter 118, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only Son, has made him known. Or as he said earlier on in this night before he died, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The disciples, the 11 men in the room with him, they're not more spiritually insightful naturally. They don't figure out God's identity just because they're very clever Bible scholars. Far from it. They belong to the the dark, rebellious world, just like everyone else. And God gave them to Jesus so that Jesus could open their spiritual eyes. You see verse 6, they were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. You know what it's like when you're talking to someone, and you're really not sure they understand what you're talking about, but you give them the benefit of the doubt nonetheless. That seems to be what Jesus does here for his disciples. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. What he says deliberately echoes what he has just said before he starts praying. So just look over the page, chapter 16, verse 30. This is what they say to him. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. See, on the face of it, that looks like kind of hand-on-heart certainty. But we should know the disciples well enough by now to be rather skeptical of their confidence. And Jesus also knows that. You see chapter 16, 31 and 32, he says, Do you now believe? A time is coming and has now come when you will all be scattered. He knows they're about to abandon him. Their certainty doesn't seem like it's worth very much. But Jesus, in verse 8 of our reading, gives them the benefit of the doubt. He says, They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. He gives them the benefit of the doubt, and particularly what he does is he contrasts them with the unbelieving world. Compared to the world, they are light years ahead. His enemies have tried to explain away or to ignore his miracles. 
They refuse to engage with the extraordinary claims he makes about himself. But the disciples stick with Jesus, and they keep on sticking with him. Reminds me of what happens in chapter 6. You know, chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000, and he has a really tough conversation with them afterwards. And at the end of that, or during that conversation, they say, some of the crowd say to Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? In other words, how can we go to heaven when we die, Jesus? And he says, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. And at the end of that chapter, many of these wannabe disciples, they, they leave Jesus because they find his teaching too hard. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you want to leave as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, compared to the unbelief of the world, the disciples, they do know for certain. And that should be, I think, a wonderful encouragement for you and me today. Because if we're honest, our faith is often just like theirs. It's up and it's down with difficult or easy circumstances. Maybe someone asks us a question and we've never thought of that before and we suddenly think to ourselves, am I really right to believe in Jesus? Our faith goes up and down. But Jesus knows our hearts, just like he knew their hearts. And he graciously, so to, so to speak, gives us the benefit of the doubt. Not that he's in any doubt. He knows all things. But when the evidence of our lives fails to match up to what we say or the way we live, he knows for sure the faith in his disciples' hearts. And so he prays for more faithfulness. Jesus prays for faithfulness. Verse 9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. So Jesus pictures himself in the departure lounge. The disciples are behind him, and his father is ahead. He's got one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. And he looks back to his disciples and he says, glory has come to me through them. They are my pride and my joy. I have accomplished what you asked me to do, God. I have revealed you to them. They are my glory. But he also says, I'm not going to be with them much longer. I'm coming to you. And he looks forward towards his father. And at this point, he finally gets to his first prayer request. Halfway through verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus prays for faithfulness. Now the actual words here are, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. And that word keep is the same word translated obeyed, back in verse 6. So in other words, the disciples have kept faith with Jesus, and now Jesus says, please, Father, keep faith with them. They have trusted you. Please stick with them and keep them trusting. A little like we might wear a poppy on Remembrance Day, and very embarrassingly, I forgot to buy one, and then I couldn't find one anywhere this morning, so that's why I haven't got one on. Um, we might wear a poppy on Remembrance Day, to show our allegiance to the fallen soldiers and everything that that stands for. 
So Jesus is saying to his father, keep them loyal to, to me. Keep them with allegiance to you, Heavenly Father. And not just individually, but united together in common loyalty. Keep them by the name you gave me. There are many things that we could be loyal to as a church. We might be loyal to commission and the network that benefits us so in so many ways. We might be loyal to this wonderful building that God has given us to do ministry in. We might be loyal to the Church of England. We might be loyal to a particular way of worshipping, particular songs, particular style of service. We might be loyal to each other. We might be loyal to the history of our church and the story of the past that makes us who we are today. And all of those things are good things. And it's not wrong to be loyal to any of them. But all of them must fit under that bigger loyalty, that bigger allegiance to what God has revealed to us about himself in Christ. Because as soon as those other loyalties become bigger than that big loyalty, we'd end up being on shaky ground. We'll define ourselves by what we do or don't do, by the style we do or don't have, by who we are or aren't as a group of people. And eventually we will drift off from what God's priorities are. And you see, Jesus knew that these first disciples, they needed God's help to keep the main thing, the main thing. And we need help too. Keep on being faithful, loyal to Jesus, the only one who reveals the Father, the only one who, who gives us eternal life. So he stands in the departure lounge, his disciples behind him, his Father ahead, and he prays that his Father would keep them faithful, just as he has kept them faithful before, verse 12. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus kept them safe like the good shepherd guarding his sheep from wolves and sheep, uh, not sheep, thieves. And let no one think, well, Judas proves otherwise. No, Judas's betrayal was the exception that proves the rule. Jesus kept his disciples faithful and he prays that the Father would do the same. So let me ask you today, is faithfulness high up your list of priorities when you pray for yourself individually, for your family, especially for your church, for the network we're part of, for our partner churches, for the wider church in this country? Because we must never take faithfulness for granted. As the pressure mounts in our culture, to give allegiance to all sorts of other ideologies, some obviously in conflict with the gospel, others less so, faithfulness will become a costly thing. And we need God's help to keep on keeping his word, to be faithful. So Jesus prays for faithfulness, but that is not the end goal. Jesus doesn't finish his prayer here. Foundation, uh, faithfulness is the foundation for what he prays for next. Second, Jesus prays for mission. Jesus prays for mission. Just as he's uh, done in the previous section, Jesus spends a little bit of time, kind of if you're a golfer, waggling on the tee before he actually gets around to his prayer request. And, and um, what he does is he brings several themes together that he has been speaking about quite a lot um, in these chapters. Let me just show you some of them. First, he talks about his impending death. 
Verse 13, I am coming to you now. That's a, a veiled way of talking about the cross. I'm coming to you now. Second, he talks about his concern for his disciples' joy. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He's leaving, but he wants them to have joy. Third, he talks about the reality of fierce opposition from the world. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. So they're going to face opposition as he leaves. And finally, he prays all of that against the backdrop of Satan's schemes. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. Same word, keep them from the evil one. Sorry, Kindle's uh, stopping to us. Here we go. So the disciples, Jesus knows the disciples are heading into a spiritual battle. And he knows that he's not going to be by their side physically anymore. He knows the world is going to oppose them. The devil is going to oppose them. And so almost in passing, he prays for protection. Um, that he, God wouldn't take them out of the world, but he would protect them. And he knows, too, that joy is going to be an essential weapon for them in that spiritual battle. It's going to help them persevere through their painful circumstances. But all of that is a warm-up, a pre-prayer warm-up for what he really wants to pray about. Verse 17, here's the second prayer point. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I wonder if during the week um, you have kind of ordinary plates and ordinary cutlery that you use for ordinary meals. But maybe for a birthday or at the weekend or for Christmas, you pull out some special crockery, special cutlery, nice table decorations, things for a special purpose. That is the idea behind the words sanctify. It means setting something apart for a special purpose. And that is Jesus' prayer. He wants his Father to set his disciples apart for the special purpose of mission. Jesus has already described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He says that the Spirit of truth is going to come and going to guide them into all truth, the Holy Spirit. And now he asks his Father to set his disciples apart for the mission of the word of truth, to, to share the word of truth with the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus, you see, is the model for his disciples' mission. Earlier on in chapter 10, his enemies were arguing with him about his claim to be God's son. And he comes back to them and he uses the same language as he uses here, chapter 10, 36. He says to them, what about the one whom the Father set apart, sanctified as his very own and sent into the world. He's talking about himself. He's saying, the Father sanctified me, sent me into the world, and now I want you, Father, to sanctify them, to send them into the world too. And of course, these 11, they do that mission in a unique way. It begins in the resurrection, after the resurrection, when they're in the upper room, and um, Jesus breathes on them symbolically to give them the Holy Spirit. And he says, 
as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And their mission continues as they're scattered out of Jerusalem across Galilee and uh, to the ends of the earth. And as it continues as they write down, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what they saw and heard and written down in this book, in the New Testament. So the apostles' mission was unique. It was unrepeatable. But it is the blueprint for our mission. We're not free to make up the message. We're not given freedom to redefine mission according to what the world around us thinks or what the, or what the church might, uh, others in the church might tell us. No, we live according to the truth contained in the Bible and we share the truth as it is recorded here. Especially the true story of Jesus' journey into the world and his departure out of it. That is verse 19. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So once again, Jesus is speaking in veiled terms about his own death. He has been determined all along to set himself apart for the cross, to be the sacrifice for sin that his people need. And that we need too. Because the world lives in opposition to God. And the DNA of the world is in each and every one of us. We are by nature rebels against God, haters of him. But Jesus came to be the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. God gave his one and only son. So whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus sanctified himself for his mission to wrestle his disciples out of the grip of the world and to rescue them and us from the punishment we deserve to face forever in hell. That is the mission Jesus came to accomplish And the heartbeat of our mission today is the announcement, the repeated announcement of that good news. We may call it, as a friend of mine calls it, holy evangelism. Sharing the good news of the gospel is the special sanctified task we are given by, as Jesus calls him, our holy father. So Jesus prays for mission. I wonder how we are getting on with mission at the moment. Many of us will find it hard. Many of us will have experienced the rejection and the opposition of the world. Others may never have tried speaking about Jesus before or for a long time. But however we are getting on with mission, the first task in mission is prayer. You see, if Jesus' first disciples needed prayer and they had spent three years with him, well, we need prayer too, don't we? We need to pray for mission. So maybe we could begin by writing down five friends on a bookmark, pop it in your Bible, wherever it is, put it on your fridge, and pray for them. Pray for opportunities to share Christ with them. Could you pray too for the church? Could you use the service sheet or the the notice sheet and use that as some prayers for the week ahead? Could you pray for things coming up over Christmas? Would you pray for mission ideas for Next year, I'd love to have, a bit like we had this year, a week of mission. I was with a couple of you this week, and they were talking about how maybe we could be praying for that for a couple of months beforehand, and then doing something for a week. I'd love you to pray for that. And if you can think about that, think, oh, the Lord is maybe suggesting this or that. Why don't you come and speak to me, or to one of the other elders, or to your home group leader? We would love to, to hear from you. Well, God wonderfully answered 
Jesus' prayer, didn't he? He kept these first disciples faithful. He sent them out on mission. And you and I, the church around the world today, we would not be here if God had not answered this prayer. We are the fruit of Jesus' prayers. Yes, it was a prayer for a unique group of individuals, but it's a blueprint for the prayers we can pray today. Jesus prays for faithfulness. Jesus prays for mission. We need God to keep us trusting Jesus, to keep us faithful to the main thing. We need God to keep setting us apart, sanctifying us for the task of mission. And if these prayers are our prayers, there's a good chance we will be lined up with God's priorities and a good chance that we will enjoy the wonderful blessing that it is to be going the way God wants us to go. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for praying for your disciples. Father, we thank you for answering Jesus' prayer. And we pray that you would help us today to pray the same things, to pray for faithfulness and to pray for mission. And we pray that we might see the fruit of those prayers in our own life as a church and much further afield as well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.